Well, friends, if you've got a Bible near you, please turn to Hebrews uh, 12 and the last part of chapter 12 and chapter 13. We're coming to the end of our series in Hebrews, and by the way, although the notice sheet does say that Mike's going to preach about Hebrews chapter 5 next week, apparently he's not. He's in Matthew Matthew 5, verses 3 to 4. So, you have escaped Hebrews (laughs) for a bit. As I say, last week we didn't have time to finish off chapter 12. So, before we go on to chapter 13, I'd just like to remind you of the three headings I gave you for the second half of chapter 12. That's verses 18 to 29. If you remember, we were thinking about, first of all, what we won't encounter in God's presence, that's verses 18 to 21, then what we will encounter in God's presence, verses 22 to 24, we covered that last week, but we didn't have time to look at verses 25 to 29, which is all about how we behave when we are actually in God's presence. Verse 25 begins with a a solemn warning. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Now, who are they? Well, they are God's people because the writer is harking back to their experience in the wilderness. He's reminding them of what happened when the people disobeyed God's command and made a golden calf to worship in spite of the fact that they knew that was not what God wanted them to do. That was not the way to worship. In spite of the fact that Moses had specifically told them that, they disregarded God's instructions mediated through Moses, and they paid the price because they died in their thousands from snakes and pestilence. And the writer is saying, if they didn't escape when they heard the voice of Moses and disobeyed the one who spoke from the earth, as it were, who warned them on earth... How shall we escape if we ignore the voice of Jesus, who is the human embodiment of God? We must never forget that the God of compassion and mercy that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ is also the God of holiness and justice. You remember last week I was pointing out that pithy little translation in the Good News Bible of Galatians 6, verse 7. No one makes a fool of God. No one does make a fool of God. We can't hoodwink him. We can't pretend. He can see through all the layers of pretense and deceit. And if we don't value the forgiveness and new life that Jesus offers, then we are in great danger. Verses 28 and 29 sum it up succinctly. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That is how we should behave in God's presence, with reverence and awe. Of course, we shouldn't necessarily cover it with a kind of layer of formality which obscures it. I always remember a wonderful goon show. Those of you who remember the goon show, I live the goon shows constantly. 
Um, Neddy uh, Sigurd was, was painting a, a picture of Fifi, his girlfriend, in Paris. Uh, he was associating with the Toulouse-Lautrec. Well, you know what the Goon Show scripts are like. And he, he, he worked so hard on this painting. And every night, he said, every night I cover the painting with a layer of black paint. Well, that, that's, that's Spike Milligan's humor, isn't it? Now, we mustn't obscure our worship, our joy in worship, with covering it with a layer of formality. No, of course we shouldn't. But nevertheless, nevertheless, we must worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The Almighty is not the Almighty. He is a God of holiness and justice, and no one makes a fool of him. No one hoodwinks him least of all you and me. Okay, let's come on to chapter 13. It begins with a, a list of instructions and warnings that we should look at very carefully, and love comes at the top of the list. You remember last, or a couple of weeks now, ago at Pilgrim Hall, when Paul Stokes was giving us the list of priorities, and love comes first. Genuine love, not just pseudo-love, but genuine love. Love in verses 1 to 3, love to other Christians, love to strangers who might turn out to be angels, love to fellow believers who are suffering. And for us, that means praying for and giving to persecuted Christians. Then in verses 4 and 5, the scope is broadened to include married love, the love of husband and wife. And that's so important because... The love of husband and wife is the foundation of the family, and the family is the foundation of society. In Matthew 19, Jesus says that the one thing that can break the unbreakable bond is adultery. Its effect is catastrophic. It hurts not just those most closely involved, but it spreads its damage to the wider circle of relationships, and it poisons everything it touches. And as we're told in the, at the end of, of 1 Peter, your enemy, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking for someone to devour. He's always on the watch. And our married relationships, take it from me, are a place that he targets most of all. So just beware. Value married love. And then we're warned against the love of money, which is just as corrosive. Greed is insatiable, as we are learning from the less savory side of the banking industry. It's a strange but unavoidable truth, isn't it? The more we gain, the more we seem to need. Now, there's no doubt that there are people in our community who are in real need. I went uh, with Jenny um, to get some stuff from Sainsbury's on Friday, and it was a joy to see the food bank volunteers there. And we've got to be aware of that, aware of the need of people around them, around us, rather. But the only true way to contentment for a Christian is to be satisfied with what you have and to look to the one who's promised to provide all the needs of his people, verses four and five, 5 and 6. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. And there are those of us who've proved those words again and again and again. 
Now, verses 7 and 8 may appear to be unconnected, but actually they go perfectly together. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One of the wonderful truths of our Reformed tradition is that leadership in the church is not the preserve of professional ministers or a clerical hierarchy which dominates a supine laity. Oh, yes, the church needs leaders, and it's their responsibility to speak the word of God, but the real authority comes from the one who is head of the body, the church, Colossians 1.18, and that's the risen Lord Jesus Christ, present in the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 8 ends with those lovely words, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we were singing those words, weren't we, just a few moments ago. It's a wonderful verse, and it's a wonderful peg for preachers. Do you know what peg preaching is? I do, because I, when I was a student and much younger in the ministry, I was a right peg person, to my shame. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The three points leap out from the verse to you, don't they? Forgiveness for the past, um, strength for the present, provision for the future, and they're all to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful sermon. Very simple. Easy to remember. You don't even need notes to preach it. But it's not what the verse is saying. It's not what the verse is saying. It's saying that Jesus is the real leader of the church and he is not subject to the passing of time. While human leaders are prone to make mistakes, they come and they go, he remains the same, unchanging and utterly trustworthy. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, but remember Jesus Christ, who's the real leader, He's the risen Lord, present in the Holy Spirit. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can trust him, and he'll not let you down. That's what the verse is saying. And I think that's so encouraging. And then verses 9 and 10 are a warning against strange teachings and the temptation to go back into ritualism. You see, Christians, well, we're ordinary human beings, aren't we, really? Well, I am. You're a bit special, but I'm just ordinary. And we pick up traditions, don't we? And we, we do so especially in church. I dare say if I was much younger and I was going to stay your minister for a long time, someone in the congregation would think that it was absolutely necessary when you begin a sermon to take your jacket off and hang it over that chair. Because you see, Charles used to do that. So it must be right. And if you don't take your jacket off and put it on that chair, there's something wrong with the sermon. And somebody at the back of the church will get up, if the minister's there with a the jacket on, and say, Oi, you haven't taken your jacket off. It's so easy to fall into ritualism. But ceremonial foods and traditions... They won't build up our souls, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the undeserved but freely given mercy of God, will. Now, what's all this about 
an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Um, Let me read it to you. Verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, you see. That's how our our hearts are strengthened. Not by ceremonial foods, which are of no, uh, no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. What does it mean? What's it all about? Under the old covenant, sacrifices were offered like this. The animal would be ritually sacrificed. Its blood would be caught because, of course, the blood is the life of the animal and therefore belongs to God, not to us. So its blood would be caught in a vessel and carried into the most holy place and splashed against the altar because it belongs to God. But the animal's body would be taken away and burned somewhere else. Verse 11, the high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. The bulk of the sacrifice would be consumed either by the worshiper or by the priest. That was how it was done under the old covenant. But our altar is different. And if you're locked up still in ritualism and ceremony, if you're trusting in what you can do to make yourself right with God, you have no part in our altar. Our altar is different. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. What is our altar? Our altar is the cross. And our sacrifice has been offered once for all for the sins of the whole world. You remember that, those of you who were perhaps brought up in the Church of England uh, or had a relationship with the Church of England as I did at boarding school, remember the communion service? Almighty God, you gave your only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. He made thereby his one offering of himself a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice Oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And he did it once for all. Once for all. Jesus offered himself. And there is no further offering. That's one of the reasons why I asked Josh to deal with the theme of sacrifice this morning. Because in this chapter 13... The spotlight is on sacrifice. Have a look at verses 11 to 15. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. The place where Jesus was crucified was outside the city. Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified was literally outside the gate of Jerusalem. You remember Mrs. Alexander's hymn, There is a green hill far away without a city wall. I was used to think it was crazy. What do you need a city wall around a green hill for? But of course, it doesn't mean that the green hill hasn't got a city wall. It means that the green hill is outside the city wall, 
Our Savior was crucified in a place outside the scope of the community. And that served to underline his people's rejection of him. His form of execution was also cursed. The Jewish law declared, cursed is anyone who hangs on a cross. So he died a cursed death in no man's land. And the challenge of verse 13 is that we should follow him and not shrink from sharing the disgrace and the shame that he bore. Let us then go to him outside the camp. Let's stand up in society like sore thumbs. Let's bear our witness to our faith in spite of increasing secularism and hostility from those around us. These Jewish Christians understood this very, very well. They paid a heavy price for their faith, and we've got to be prepared to pay the same price as society becomes more and more hostile to our Christian profession. Verses, um, let, let, let me just stop on verse 14, because it's so wonderful. Here we do not have a continuing city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Do you ever get discouraged about yourself or about society or about the church? Don't worry. This isn't our destination. There's lots of things that are wrong with society, with ourselves and with the church. But don't worry, because we don't have an enduring city here. This is not where we are stopping. We're looking forward to a city that is to come. Always, always, always looking forward. That's why Hebrews is so encouraging. Uh, verses 15 to 19, are that there are three more instructions. First of all, offer a continual sacrifice of praise so that your Christian profession will be vindicated by the life you live. Second, remember your leaders. Pray for them. Realize that they're there by the Holy Spirit's choosing. But please, please, please don't make their life and ministry too difficult by scrapping and fighting with each other. And remember that they also will give an account of their leadership. And lastly, pray and go on praying because prayer works. And then we come to verses 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and forever. It's one of the loveliest blessings in the whole of the New Testament. He is the God of peace, shalom, wholeness. The eternal covenant, the covenant in which we stand, is not based on the unlikely prospect of human faithfulness, but on the unchanging nature of a faithful God. You know that song that we sang, Your Love is Wonderful, Unchanging God? I'm so grateful to David for writing that song. Because he puts in those simple words the center of the gospel of grace. That nothing and no one can pluck you out of God's hand. If you belong to him, you're there because he chose you and because you have responded and because you've given your life to him. But nothing and no one can ever threaten your eternal destiny. Who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. And the covenant is sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit working to fulfill his purpose in each one of us. And finally, we come to the 
closing words of the chapter. Maybe verse 22 makes you smile. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. Most of us are not used to receiving letters which are long enough to be cut up into 13 chapters. But nevertheless, it is a short letter. It has some important and perhaps a little tricky teaching about the nature and work of the Lord Jesus that needs to be carefully unpacked, but its theme is a very simple one. Those three little words, never give up, never give up. There's a wonderful story about an Oxford don who was an atheist who adored the music in the college chapel and would come to Evensong whenever he could. And one evening, there was a power cut, and all the lights went out. The only illumination was given by the candles burning on the altar. But, of course, the service proceeded, and just as the presenter was chanting one of the evening collects, Lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, all the lights went on. Well, the old Don left the chapel shaking his head and muttering, it shook me doubts, it shook me doubts. And in just the same way, verses 23, 24, and 25 shake my doubts in the certainty that this letter was not written by Paul. Because it sounds so Pauline, doesn't it? I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. I told you months and months ago that I think Apollos wrote Hebrews, and I think probably he did, but we shall see. We shall see when we get to heaven and Apollos is there and we shake his hand and thank him for it. Apollos was mighty in the scriptures and the letter is packed full of scripture quotations. There's no reason why Apollos should not have known Timothy or been in Italy when he was in prison there. Did all this happen at a later stage after Paul had been executed? Or was Paul really the writer? And is it his voice that we've heard all through the letter encouraging the Jewish Christians and millions of others through 2,000 years not to throw away their confidence, but to go on persevering in obedience to the one whose promise will never be broken? Well, we shall never know until that moment when we find out. But what really matters is that we hold on to this letter. We read it. We mark it. We inwardly digest it. It's a wonderful letter. It's a precious letter. It breathes warning, encouragement, and faith in every sentence. Treasure it. Love it. Read it again and again and again. Make it part of your life. It is God's word to his people. And there is no more precious gift in creation than that.